Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Good morning. My name is Britt Owsley. I'm the Connections Director here at Crossroads. And as Charlie likes to start us off every week, I just want to address the fact that in our culture, we can be really critical. I have lots of opinions about a lot of things. And when we come into a space like this, we're here to participate, not to critique. And that's something we need God's help to do. So we're going to take a moment right now to pray. Uh, We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts that as we're here, we're not critiquing, but we are participating. And we are listening for what he wants to teach us. So pray with me. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come from Jesus to teach us. You've come from Jesus to be with us and to fill us. And I pray right now that you would fill our hearts with your love, with your kindness, and with your wisdom. And that each of us would be able to listen today without a heart of criticism, but with a heart of yearning and listening to you. Take a moment to pray to the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. And in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I've been getting into my family ancestry a lot recently. Um, I made an interesting discovery that there's a historical society devoted to my first ancestor in America. The Owsley Family Historical Society is devoted to a guy named Major Thomas Owsley, who, just a couple facts about him, came to America when he was 19, started a trading company that required him to travel between Virginia and England, and on one of these voyages, he was uh, kidnapped by Algerian pirates. He had to be ransomed for about 100 pounds, and his dad was actually a preacher and couldn't afford it, so the church took up a collection to get him back from the pirates. Uh, He had a really interesting life, but I can't go into it a ton, but he had a bunch of kids, and his son had a bunch of kids, and there's a bunch of Owsies all over the country. That's why there's a historical society devoted to it. But if you count down the generations from Thomas to Thomas Jr. all the way down, you get to me, I'm a 10th generation American. That's something I'm actually really proud of. It was nice to, nice to learn. Um, if you actually look at my mom's side of the family, I'm a fifth-generation Texan. So my American heritage and my Texan heritage are something I'm actually pretty proud of and goes back a long time. But that was challenged a couple of years ago. I actually went on a mission trip to South Africa, but during the layover we had in London, it was about 10 hours long, so we spent a good time of that. We went on a train and we went into the city of London to see it just kind of see the sights while we were there. We saw Big Ben, we saw Buckingham Palace, Parliament, and then we got near Westminster Abbey, which is a big famous church there, and we started seeing this crowd gathering. And we just thought, huh, let's stop and wait for what they're waiting on. Just see what the locals are looking at. A really important looking car pulled up, and a really important looking man with red hair got out. And at the time I didn't know who this was, Since he's been interviewed by Oprah, so a lot of people know who he is, but I didn't know at the time this was Prince Harry. Someone next to me had to tell me. And all of a sudden, I was really excited. And all of my 10 generations of American uh, 
independent spirit, was suddenly enamored because this was the grandson of the queen. I love the British royalty. And in that moment, I was like, I'm only 20 yards from a guy related directly to her. And I'm not the only one that loves the British royalty like this. If you look at some of the shows that are really popular on Netflix, Downton Abbey, The Crown, there's a show called Bridgerton that just released its second season. In America, we really like British shows. We really like British nobility. We like getting caught up in the romantic image it paints of these people who are really powerful and wield a lot of authority and influence and wealth. And I think that draw is something that all of us humans have. We're drawn towards this one powerful, beautiful leader. But that's something we actually have to be really careful about. We learned that from the American Revolution. The British monarchs we were rebelling against had become tyrants. And our founding fathers created a document that tried to create our government in a way that resisted this pull to one powerful, beautiful, glorious leader. This is because democracies actually don't end up as democracies most of the time. If you look at history, the Republic of Rome that lasted 400 years, basically overnight by popular vote, ended up with Julius Caesar as the dictator. He got assassinated. And then his adopted son, Augustine, Augustus, was able to just grab that and become emperor. And then for a 1,000 years, Roman, Rome was an empire. If you look at France, they actually tried to become a republic right after we did. They instituted democratic reforms and things, and they weren't, in my opinion, as careful, and so it kind of devolved into mob rule. This guy named Robespierre just kind of ruled with an iron fist, and he got 17,000 people executed. Then that government fell apart, and you ended up with Emperor Napoleon. Democracies give way to these people that we want to have as leaders. We're drawn to this. This is just in human nature. And I actually think that this comes from a good spot, that we're, we, we should trust leaders to a degree, but even in America, we don't trust our leaders. Pew Research in 2021 found that only one in four Americans would agree to the statement that they trust in politicians to do what's right most or all of the time. We want to follow a powerful leader, but we don't know who to trust. So what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? If you open your Bibles to Matthew 21, we're going to read about Jesus on what I would argue is his most political day. For many Jews, this was his debut. He'd been touring around, he'd been preaching, but a lot of the residents of Jerusalem and a lot of the out-of-towners that were coming in had never seen him before. And so he was making a political statement. He was arguing that he was the king. He was taking a claim and trying to get people to think about who he is. And if you look at uh, verse 10 in chapter 21, it says, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? And that's the question I want to talk about today. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Matthew thinks the identity of Jesus is something that's really important. He actually brings up the question seven times in his gospel. This is the second to last time. And this is the most public time. And it's littered with Old Testament references and passages, and there's a bunch that we could go into, and lots of Palm Sunday services do that. But I like what Alistair Begg, he's a pastor in, I think, Ohio, said. All these Old Testament references are like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, which you pick up, and then on their own, they may not actually seem like they make much sense. When they're placed together and in relation to one another, in relationship to the picture of the whole Bible, then suddenly we begin to grasp the picture. Otherwise, we're left with a really strange tale. I thought that line was kind of funny. On Palm Sunday, Jesus showed us this big picture in jigsaw puzzle pieces. 
he identified who he was and said that he was the king, and he did that primarily by where he was, where he did what he was doing, what he did, and when he did it. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's go back to verse 1. It says, They approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. So where is Jesus? He's on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, I was actually just in um, the Holy Land a couple, like a month ago, and something that stood out to me is that the Mount of Olives is actually taller than this mountain that Jerusalem's on. If you're in the city or you're in the temple, you look up to see the top of the Mount of Olives. It's this hill that's overlooking the city. And in the Old Testament, it's actually a pretty important city. There's promises associated with it. So a quick history lesson. Here's Jesus. About a thousand years before Jesus, Solomon finished the first temple. And when he finished the first temple, God's glory in the form of a cloud came and filled the temple. Then about 600 years before Jesus, 400 years later, Ezekiel saw a vision of that glory cloud leaving the temple. God's presence left because the people had abandoned his covenant, and he allowed the temple to be destroyed by the Babylonians. Well, about 100 years after that, 500 years before Jesus, they started rebuilding the temple. And they were expecting to see what Solomon saw, that a glory cloud would come in, that they would know that God was with them. But they were disappointed. There was no glory cloud. There was no real response at all. And so they were waiting. But God, through his prophets, promised them that one day the glory would return. One day it would come back, and it would come back the same way that it left. So when Ezekiel saw it leave, it went out the east gate of the temple, up the Mount of Olives, and then went into heaven. And Ezekiel said the same thing would happen when it came back. The glory of God is coming down from the Mount of Olives. So what does that say about who Jesus is when he's standing on the Mount of Olives? I would say, because we're Christians and because we know after the fact, Jesus is God. He's truly divine and he's truly human. And so when Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, getting ready to come into the city to go in through the Eastern Gate, he is announcing that he is God. He is God's glory come back to the temple to fulfill the promise. And in Jesus, that promise was kept. So let's keep going. If we go back to verse 1, it says, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we see Jesus, he's on the Mount of Olives, announcing that he is the glory of God, and he's sending for a donkey and its colt to fulfill this promise that Zechariah preached, that the king would come in on a donkey. But why a donkey? It's kind of a weird image, if you think about it. A lot of association with humility is often brought up, because it says that in the prophecy, that he's coming humbly. But I've actually done some interesting research and found that donkeys actually have a lot to do with kings. In Middle Eastern literature, if you want to refer to somebody as a king in an indirect way, you would say that he rides a donkey. So kings ride donkeys, princes ride donkeys, and actually there's this weird thing in the book of Judges, when the judges will, it'll just randomly say, and then their sons rode donkeys, and the 30 of their sons rode 30 donkeys. That's actually a hint that they have kingly ambitions. 
that these donkey riders are people who want to be kings or are kings. So when Jesus is riding into the city, he's signaling to people, I am a king. It makes me think of when, like, the president comes to town, he's got those little flags on his car. And as he's coming through, um, we know he's got this entourage, he's got a really nice-looking car, those flags are flying. But the flags themselves aren't only on, like, the president's car. I saw a truck last week at Walmart that had two really, really big flags just kind of flying behind it. So we know he's not the president. But what tells us that those flags, uh, that what those flags with the nice car, with the entourage, lets us know this is an important person. This this is the president. And so lots of people had donkeys. Lots of people rode on donkeys. Lots of people used them as a piece of burden. But when you have the entourage, when you have a nice donkey, and you have uh, this claim to kingship that Jesus does, that's what it communicates. Something interesting about the donkey, Mark actually tells us that it's never been ridden before. Matthew here is telling us that it's a colt with its mother. That means that this is a really fresh donkey. It probably hasn't done a lot of labor. No one's ridden it, so it's probably not dirty. Anybody else who's coming into the city, which actually wouldn't have been very many people riding on donkeys, they would be on something covered in the dust of the road. Uh, Probably there's dirt. They've had to walk through creeks. This one's fresh and clean. So this fresh, clean, strong, young donkey mounted by this figure would look like a king to the people of Jerusalem. And remember, he's coming down the Mount of Olives. A bunch of people on the lower hill in the city potentially could see this king coming. When Jesus rode the donkey, he was proclaiming, I'm the king. I'm the king that owns this city. But when Zechariah prophesied that the king would come, and when Jesus was riding 600 years later, Israel had always been under foreign occupation. It had always been a foreign king that had been in charge. And right now it was the Romans. And Caesar was particularly jealous of anybody claiming to be king. Jesus didn't care. Jesus showed up on the donkey and said, I'm doing this. He knew what was going to happen. We all know the story. He was going to be rejected. He was going to be falsely accused. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be tortured. He was going to be ridiculed and rejected by the crowds. And then he was going to die. But this king decided to come and face all of that anyway. He's courageous. He's humble. He's kind. But he knows what he's going to do. When we look at what Jesus did on Palm Sunday, we see that he's the king that doesn't back down. He's the king that follows through. We think about the where. The Mount of Olives shows that he's God. We think about the what, that he was riding on a donkey, shows that he's the king. We think about the when, we get a pretty interesting picture, but it's a little more complicated than those two images. So Jesus is approaching the city before Passover. Passover is the celebration of uh, God bringing the people out of Egypt, more specifically the celebration that when the ten plagues were coming, the tenth plague took the firstborn. But if the Jews offered a lamb, their firstborn was not taken. This exchange of innocent blood for the blood of the guilty. Jesus is coming into the city with a lot of expectation about the meaning of this holiday. But the festival was one of three that actually required that pilgrims come in from everywhere. Uh, There were three holidays a year that Jews had to come to Jerusalem if they could. And people were coming from all over the place. We find out later there's Simon of Cyrene. He's a guy from Africa. He was about 1,100 miles away, and he made the whole journey. So Jews, when they could, were supposed to come all this way 
And so there's tons of people flooding into the city for days and days before. So as Jesus is making this ride, there's pilgrims everywhere. There's people coming from all directions and also coming down the Mount of Olives. So there's already a crowd there. And, Jesus knew that, they would be singing different songs. There's certain hymns, there's certain psalms in the Old Testament that are normal to sing as you walk into Jerusalem on these festival days. One of the most important ones is Psalm 118. And they're singing it. And then they see the king coming. And Psalm 118 mentions the king coming. Uh, Let's go back to Matthew and see what he says here. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them, getting the donkey and everything. They brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. The pilgrims are responding. They see what's going on. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds went ahead of him, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Those are lines that come from Psalm 118. This is a song they normally sing at the festival, but they're seeing it happen in front of them. The one who's coming in the name of the Lord is showing up. So instead of just singing it, they're singing it to him. Hosanna is a word of praise. It literally means save us, but over time it came to mean save us and like praise you because we know you will save us. Uh, And so they're saying that to the son of David. They're saying to Jesus, save us. Praise you because we know you're going to save us. And in a sense, because they knew he was the king, they thought he was the Messiah, they thought he was going to save in a particular way, they had false expectations about what was going on. But the psalm actually lets us know Jesus' intentions here, what Jesus is really going to do. If we go to Psalm 118 itself, I'm just going to read verses 25 to 28. Lord, save us. That's actually where we get Hosanna. Lord, please grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Have you ever been listening to a song, and you've been listening to it for years, and then you suddenly realize what the lyrics actually say, and you think that's really weird? Um, My dad used to play the Beatles sometimes, and I'd stop and I'd think, what on earth are they even talking about? Well, here, in the middle of verse 27, they're talking about Hosanna, praise God, and then bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. What is that even talking about? There's this idea that at these festivals where they're coming into the city, there's going to be sacrifices, but the one who comes in the name of the Lord is the sacrifice that gets bound. Jesus knows this, even though the people don't recognize it. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. He's going to die like those lambs on Passover. As he offers his sacrifice, he's taking the place of humanity. And he's doing it on a mountain that this has happened many times before. Just the example of Abraham is the most important. Abraham brought his son up on the mountain because God asked him to offer a son. And in place of his son, God offered a ram instead and saved the son. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is coming to offer himself in our place. Soon, the Jewish leaders were going to come for him. But right now they're saying, Hosanna, praise the son of David. Soon, the Jewish leaders are going to whip them up and to say, crucify him instead. And then the Romans are going to bind him to the cross. And it'll be like an altar 
It'll fulfill the words of this that says, buying the festival sacrifice. The win of Palm Sunday, this festival psalm that's being sung, points us to the fact that Jesus is willing to take our place, that he offers himself in our stead, and he's the sacrifice that saves us. So we've seen Jesus' where and what and when. The hill tells us that he's God. The donkey tells us that he's our king. And the festival song tells us that he's our sacrifice. So how did the city respond? Let's read verses 10 and 11. When he entered the city, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus got them wondering about who he was. And he showed them if they were paying attention. But they kind of missed it. They only saw a prophet. They didn't see God coming back. They didn't see the king. They didn't see the sacrifice for them. They couldn't see because they weren't really looking. And in my experience, that happens a lot. I was on a mission trip in Russia, and I met a guy that I'll call Mike and he was really philosophical. He was a college student. He really wanted to learn more about the world, and he wanted to explore every religion. But everything always came back to the idea that truth was this abstract thing that was infinite, and we could never really get our heads around it. And so one thing that I said that seemed to really draw him in was I said, what if that infinite, abstract truth behind everything was actually a person, and he wanted to get to know you? And he was like, I've never thought of that before. So we started talking, and I ended up meeting with him for a couple hours, several days throughout a whole week. And at the end of it, he was just kind of like not willing to commit to the idea that truth could be a person. He was just kind of circling his wheels. He couldn't see how Jesus could be the answer to the questions that he'd been asking. He didn't really want to see. I met another guy on the same trip. His name I'll call Richard. Um, he was really resistant to the gospel because he was specifically really resistant to the idea that God could just forgive you. If you did something wrong, you needed to pay for it. If he did something wrong, he needed to suffer for it. And he needed to work hard to earn favor. And we were talking, and at one point he just basically broke down crying because he felt so guilty about the way he treated his mother. And I just said, Jesus forgives you. And something just snapped in him. He immediately was just full, of, he was still crying, but he was full of this like joy. It's like he finally got it. He finally could see it. Jesus was the sacrifice in his place. He still had a lot of questions, and I talked about the promises of the Old Testament, that God would send a Savior, that Jesus was that, and here's all the ways that that fulfilled it. And he just ate it up because he could see Jesus was matching all of these promises. God was keeping his promises in Jesus. So what Mike couldn't see, Richard could. It makes us wonder what we can see when we look to Jesus. What does it look like for us to look to him? to trust him as our God, as our king, as our sacrifice. If we think about our thought lives, how we trust him with our thoughts, a quote that came to mind from a 20th century theologian that I really like says, what comes into our minds when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. We think about the things that are most important to us, and so how often do we think about Jesus? And this isn't meant as like a guilt thing of like, oh no, I wasn't thinking about Jesus just then. But how do we bring him more to mind? How do we remind ourselves of who he is and his love for us? How do we remind him ourselves that he is our king, that he took our place, that we don't need to feel guilt? And he's a king who's issued some orders and we've, we've got some things that we need to do. 
I think we should also learn to trust him with our hearts. Earlier I mentioned this drive that we have, especially I have, towards royalty. We want the one powerful leader we can follow. I think that's because we were created for our king. I think we were created to pursue after Jesus. He's the one true leader that we can follow and trust. But we have a lot of desires in our hearts. We have desires for food. We have desires for attention, for security. And I would make the argument that Jesus is the true satisfaction of all of those desires. Jesus promised to meet our desires, but sometimes that looks like surrendering them to him a little bit, letting him mold them, letting him change them, and he doesn't always meet them the way we would expect. But what would it look like if we trusted him with those things really near and dear, the things that we want, and said, change this in me? We also need to trust him with our deeds. We need to trust him with how we act, with what we do, a lot of us, like myself, have trusted Jesus as the sacrifice. I know that I needed him for my sins, and so I said, please forgive me. Please pay for me, and I'll take the salvation. But we don't always, I don't always, acknowledge him as the king. Sometimes I think my way is better. Sometimes I think it's, it's okay not to be patient. It's okay to yell at this person. It's okay to wallow in my feelings of insecurity and loneliness rather than trusting that he loves me and he surrounded me with people that love me. So if we are going to respond to Jesus, I like what this bishop from the 700 said. Let us run to accompany him as he hastens towards his passion and imitate those who met him there, not covering his path with garments, olive branches, or palms, but by doing all we can to live as he would wish. Let us spread before his feet not garments or branches, but ourselves clothed in grace. I really love that. I really love the idea of thinking that I'm not following a king who demands obedience, but I'm following a king who says, come to me, worship me, and in doing so, you're able to bless others. You're able to see my ways and follow me in it because my ways are trustworthy. This week is traditionally called Passion Week. We start today with Palm Sunday, celebrating when Jesus came into the city. He spent a number of days debating with Jewish leaders, basically getting on everyone's nerves, and it ends this week with Good Friday and then Easter. On Good Friday, Jesus chose the way of humility and suffering. He chose to suffer for us, to give himself for us, even though he was our God. He was our king. He offers himself as a sacrifice. And we can't really think about it enough. We can't really respond to it enough except to trust him. What would it look like if we all trusted him together? If our church was a place we were constantly talking and thinking about Jesus, his ways, his love. Think about the sins that we could overturn and overcome. Think about the hurts that we could heal in people's hearts and in their bodies. Think about the love and the truth that we could present to the world. They don't know that God keeps his promises. They don't know that there's a king that they can trust in. But in this ever-changing culture, we look to the king who keeps his promises. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Jesus. We give thanks for the ways that you've kept your promises through him. There's so many, Lord. But you came to us in your son. 
he gave himself up for us. And we can't say it enough. Thank you for his love. Thank you for his life. Thank you that the King of Kings surrendered himself.